Welcome to all of you and, and thank you for coming for the uh, spring lecture in the Autobiographical Reflection Series of the Stanford Emeriti Council. Uh, I'm David Abernethy, Chair this year of the, of the Council, and it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Professor Leland Smith, a Professor of Music Emeritus, who actually taught and was a colleague of our speaker. Um, and John Chowning, our speaker, has asked Leland to, to give the introduction, and we're very pleased to introduce Leland Smith. Himself, um, an instrumentalist of very great skill, um, played the bassoon in the San Francisco Symphony, amongst many other instruments that he played, taught, for Stan taught here at Stanford for 34 years, uh, teaching musicology and music composition, a pioneer, along with John Chowning, in um, computer music, and you'll hear more about that from him and from our speaker. So with many thanks to you, Leland, for coming and giving the introductory honors, I ask you to come up here. Yes, uh, Arnold Schoenberg wrote a book on harmony, and in the, uh, near the beginning, he said, uh, this book I have learned from my students. Well, in my 34 years at Stanford, I had many, many very illustrious students, but uh, one of them from wh whom I learned a great deal, John Chowning, actually changed my life. <laughs> that is, got me into the uh, world of computers. Uh, I sort of feel a bit like uh, in the Faust legend where uh, uh, Faust uh, is going up a mountain and uh, the devil keeps saying, just come a little bit more with me and you will find this great happiness. Well, that's the way the computers are. We keep going up the mountain and, and I don't think we're there even yet. But anyway, uh, John Chowning has had an illustrious career, uh, first at uh, Wittenberg University, and actually I think before that he studied in Paris with Nadia Boulanger, and then he came to Stanford uh, where he got a master's degree in uh, what we would call conventional composition, and one day he came and he said, oh, he'd like to do further work with computer music. So I said, well, that's fine with me, just as long as you teach me as we go along. And that's what happened. So John will tell you what happened from that point on. And here's John Chowning. Thank you. All right. So thank you very much, Leland. And uh, <clears throat> I see many people whose faces are very familiar, and I thank you all for coming. And uh, this is a great adventure that, that uh, I began at Stanford and was quickly joined by uh, Leland. And uh, so here's the story. In 1957, Max Matthews created a wholly new means of making music. 
with the support of John Pierce, who was director of, the research, of research at Bell Telephone Laboratories, Matthews created out of numbers and code the first sounds to be produced by a digital computer based upon the Nyquist-Shannon sampling theorem. Over the next years, Matthews improved the program as the technology evolved and in November 1963, he introduced his work to the public in a now famous article in Science. A fellow percussionist in the Stanford Symphony Orchestra, Joan Mansour, a biologist by training, gave me this article in January 1964. I was the tympanist. We'd had many conversations during the many rests that percussionists wait through in symphonic music, and she remembered my having expressed an interest in music that could be created for loudspeakers. I had never read science before. I was a composer. I read about and studied music. So having Matthew's article in hand, given to me by a thoughtful colleague, was a bit of serendipity that changed my life, as well as the lives of many others, uh, as Leland has just indicated. I had come to Stanford in 1962 as a graduate student in music composition after three years studying in Paris, where electroacoustic music was often a part of the new music concerts. Pierre Boulez's Domaine Musical series at the Théâtre d'Ion, for example. I was fascinated by the idea of composing music for loudspeakers. I was interested in creating music in illusory spaces that would allow compositional constructions in which sound could be positioned and moved through the space. But at Stanford, we had no studio, no obvious means to create music for the loudspeaker itself. At the time I read Max's article, I was completely naive in regard to physical acoustics and the engineering sciences. In fact, I had never seen a computer. I had no knowledge of circuits, did not know how to solder, but I did understand the implication of Matthew's striking statement. There are no theoretical limitations to the performance of the computer as a source of musical sounds, in contrast to the performance of ordinary instruments. The computer, then, was the perfect complement to the loudspeaker. It could provide the means to realize my goal. The computer generates a sound wave in digital form, which is converted into a continuous electrical signal by a digital to analog converter. Compared to electronic music studios of the epoch, with circuit boards, test equipment, wires, and patch cords, this was a conceptually simple system having three well-defined stages and pieces of machinery whose circuitry was fixed. I would not have to learn to solder. But I had to learn to program a computer. I spoke to Leland, my composition theory professor, of my plan to follow th this path. He encouraged me, as did Professor Bill Miller, who guided me in the study of acoustics. Thank you, Bill. At the time, Leland was preparing to go away on sabbatical leave, so could not join me in the work. I looked for a programming course. I then discovered Stanford's strong commitment to computers. In the spring quarter of 1964, George, Professor George Forsyth 
taught a computer programming course for non-engineering students with the promise basically that if you can add and subtract, the course is for you. I took the course and proved to myself that I could program. In the summer, I visited Max at Bell Labs in Murray Hill, New Jersey. He explained to me what I would have to do in order to run his program at Stanford, gave me the program in the form of a box of punch cards with a stern warning, warning you know, don't drop the cards. <laughs> now to my other side in the Stanford Orchestra was the tuba player, a very good one. Tuba players also have lots of rests in symphonic music, so we too had opportunities to talk. But we did not talk about computers. In fact, I did not know anything about David Poole's academic interests, except that he was a math major. We talked about music, folk arts, sailing, but we never talked about computers. So having returned from Bell Labs in September 1964, standing with a box of punch cards in my hands in the Stanford Computer Center, it was a great surprise and my good fortune to meet my friend David Poole, whom I had known since one and a half years as a tuba player. I showed Dave the article. He thought a moment and then took me on a tour, the Burroughs Alcohol Computer, which I had already, was already familiar with from Forsyth's course, the IBM 7090, the IBM's 1301 disk drive, and DEC PDP-1. Fascinated by the idea, David quickly figured out that between the IBM 7090 and the AI's PDP-1, it was possible to construct a music synthesis system. Ed Feigenbaum, then director of the Comp Center, arranged for free 7090 time, but we needed permission to use the PDP-1. I met John McCarthy to ask for computer time. Surprised, he asked, to do what? To make music, I replied, and briefly explained my dream. His expression changed from surprise to doubt. Then David Poole, who was hanging back, stepped up and explained to him that we needed occasional use of the PDP-1 as a sample memory buffer and its CRT display as a DAC. Having confidence that David, who was taking one of his classes, would not make a trivial request, stroking his chin in thought, he said, okay. John McCarthy got it. There was no alternative. Computer music was a path that could not possibly have been explored without his help. And John's mind, like many great minds, was adventurous. Pat Supis, the co-owner of the PDP-1, could have protested, but thankfully did not. Thank you, Pat. So Ed Feigenbaum, John McCarthy, Ed Colby from the Music Library who gave me a recorder, Leland's encouragement and support, and Robert Rosenfeig gave me a one-year IBM grant to pursue this work. Max's article went on to say, the range of computer music is limited principally by cost and by our knowledge of psychoacoustics. These limits are rapidly receding. Psychoacoustics, how to manipulate the physical features of sound to create a desired perception was and remains one of the greatest challenges. As we will see, FM synthesis revealed a lot. Cost? What was the cost of one of IBM's big machines? About 150,000 bytes, 
core memory, permanent storage, magnetic tape drives, lots of them. So the footprint was huge. The cost was $2,898,000. That's basic unit, no frills. And then it rents for uh, 63000 per month. This cute computer before me, four gigabytes of memory, 250 gigabytes of solid state storage, 2.3 gigahertz clock, footprint about a tenth of a square meter, cost $2,500. This is about a thousand to one change in cost, but the real measure is what we get for one thousandth the cost. So scaling according to memory, about 150,000 bytes in 1964 versus four gigabytes in 2011. It's about $20 per byte if we versus 63 cents times 10 to the minus six. Okay, so the value of the IBM 7090 in 2011 would be nine cents. <laughs> the value of this laptop in 1964, 78 billion dollars <laughs> and 50 cents. So I remember that when I opened this machine, not only the memory, but the great software and the uh, operating system, we, we never see the little black bomb any longer. There certainly has been change. So Max was right, of course. Leland Smith's score program. In 1966, Leland, back from his sabbatical, asked me to show him how the computers work. I spent an hour or so explaining him a, a Fortran program and gave him a manual. Within days, he had built the first version of a program, SCORE, that facilitated the input of data to David Poole's rewrite of the, in PDP-10 assembly language of Max's music synthesis program. SCORE was logical in a musical sense, part by part, rather than a list of acoustic events. I made use of this program in my experiments in spatialization and in composing my first pieces. Then, at some point, Leland realized that the output of the program he had built for specifying music as sound could be easily adapted with an additional layer of code to control the AI lab's plotter and specify music as symbol. The plotter image was photographed, photo-reduced, producing elegant printed music. His first publications were by his own San Andreas Press, faultless publications. This is a page of score, his own piece, published, I guess, by San Andreas Press. This is Lion King, probably published by Hal Leonard, I forget. This is Debussy's Image, by, published by Durand. His work advanced with the imaging technology in the early 80s, and the first of the major music publishers, Schott, began using score rather than typesetting its new editions. SCORE became and remains the high-end industry standard. From the very beginning, I worked on the simulation of moving sound sources as auditory illusions. 
looking for books and papers having to do with sound localization, our perception of sound in space, I found what was published was mostly in a small specialized library in the Department of Speech and Hearing Sciences in the School of Medicine, the domain of Professor Earl Schubert. The guidance he provided me in those early years was later extended to numbers of karma students. After retiring from the medical school, Schubert maintained a close contact with karma through the rest of his life. Little was known, especially about our perception of distance. Is the sound close or far? What is the auditory equivalent to perspective and vision? There, were lots of in, there was lots of information about our perception of angle, as it was so important to the stereo image in LP recordings, which were only a few years old. But there was little about distance. I sensed that reverberation was an important component in distance perception, and having Dave Poole's program allowed me to test my ideas. So what is the relationship between loudness and distance? A loud sound that is then played more softly with less force or effort decreases in intensity. And there's also a reduction in the high frequency partials or brightness of, of timbre or the centroid of the spectrum shifts toward the lower partials. But a sound at distance also decreases in intensity. However, in a sound at distance, there's little change in brightness and centroid. We will listen to five pairs of percussive tones that increase in distance, followed by five tones that decrease in loudness. Finally, the last of each group, so you could compare. This is auditory perspective. This distinction between loudness and distance is a musical subtlety that is lost in most popular music today, which is mostly just loud. <laughs> but it is an important part of our musical experience in traditional performance, because there's a reason that the louder brass instruments are at the rear of the orchestra. At the end of this talk, you will hear just how effective the distance cue can be used. Putting all the parts together, angle, distance, and Doppler shift, my program to control the movement of sounds through an illusory space was largely complete by 1968. From the sound trajectory drawn or computed around the listener space as shown in the upper left, the program automatically computed six control functions. I had generated a number of simple geometrical paths in order to evaluate the strength of the illusions. The Doppler effect was clearly a very important part of the illusion. Now a circular path that passes just in front of the listener. This is the path, and now the sound following the circular path twice around.
Why do we care about Doppler shift in auditory perception? Even long before fast-moving trains and automobiles. And for the illusion of moving sounds, it is a persuasive complement to radio velocity, as shown here. This diagram represents the processing that I had created in 1968 in the form of a program subroutine to Leland's score program. It is a culmination of all that I had learned, designed and built a four-channel DAC digital analog converter by a friendly engineer, and I had discovered FM synthesis the year before. I realized that while computer sound synthesis would not in real time, hands-on favoring quick response, as were the analog studios around the world. It would be someday, as I will demonstrate shortly, but it brought to music something else. Computer control of the material of music, as a painter has with paint and canvas, with no need for an engineer to build new sound process hardware to meet a composer's requirements, as was the case in analog studios of the day. I also realized that computer programming allowed Leland and me, using the same computer language, to accomplish two very different tasks, but very complementary tasks, joining the structure of sound itself to the structure of musical form. I also understood the importance of the diverse disciplines in the population of researchers at John McCarthy's Artificial Intelligence Lab. Computer scientists and electrical engineers, of course, but there were also other disciplines, a philosopher, a linguist, a physicist, and a psychiatrist. Leland and I were, in a sense, students, and we found in these colleagues patient teachers who willingly answered our questions as they watched us build a new means for making and representing music. Less earnest, McCarthy's able and imaginative administrator researcher protected our limited access to the AI lab system reminding the funded researchers that the reason we logged so many computer cycles was because we had little competition at three o'clock in the morning. David Poole was by now a critical member of the AI lab designing their next computer, and he was the most important teacher of all. Finally, I realized that my ears were my most important tools. The sound Localization work resulted in a patent, again, without knowing how to solder. Neil Reimers and a staff of one, Sally Hines, were a very efficient team when we began the process of patent search, application, and licensing. Neil's protected me from the less interesting aspects of patents and licensing, which allowed me to follow my own path, and he was sensitive to the boundary between the academic and the commercial a sensitivity that has been maintained by Kathy Koo and her expert team at the Office of Technology Licensing. The system was licensed to general recorded tape. They tried to develop it, but Columbia and RCA abandoned their plans for four-channel surround sound on, th on vinyl 33 and a third long play records, and 
Cinema theaters were still years away from such forward-looking technology. Income, a few thousand dollars, enough to purchase a four-channel sound system. Oh, to complete the processing, after all this work, So the system did make sounds. A better example will come in a few moments. While working on the spatial processing, I often thought of Brancusi's bird in space, which I had spent some hours with while studying in Paris. I imagined the implied curves that might be drawn if the lines of the sculpture itself were extended into space. I had begun experimenting with a drafting arm that could track the position of a mouse-like device at the end of the arm on a table. I wrote a program that plotted points at a constant rate as I moved the cursor through two-dimensional space. I quickly tired of this method of input, but not before David Poole remarked that one of my drawn patterns reminded him of a Lissajou figure. My curiosity was sparked by his comment and leading, leading me to learn about a program, learn about and program Lissajou figures. I quickly advanced through the well-known looping patterns and discovered that interesting figures could be generated, as seen here, from which the sound manifestation possessed a grace, graceful motion that seemed to be natural, in motion through ever-changing avian curves, as if the burden space had been magically freed to follow its elegant lines. Well, <clears throat> perhaps a few of us with really excellent hearing can hear that, but I can barely hear it. The dream was to be able to compose sound in space that was free of physical constraints and realities, yet would evoke images that were believable. However, I had been given the most advanced, had I been given the most advanced computer in 1964, even by the standards of today, I could not have realized my dream in a short time. I had to pass through the years of discovery and learning, first mentored and guided by Max Matthews and David Poole in matters technical, then enlightened and inspired by my colleagues. FM synthesis, which I will speak about next, is integral to Terrenus. FM Synthesis was near, discovered nearly 45 years ago when I stumbled upon it while searching for sounds having dynamic attributes that would be suitable sources in my sound localization experiments. The actual date is not known. Not having a scientific or engineering background, I did not have the habit of keeping dated lab notes, but I did keep notes. There's a record of my having visited BT Bell Telephone Labs on December 18, 1967, when I showed the data that I used in my first trials to Max Matthews and Jean-Claude Risset, and played for them the examples that I had recorded on tape. Risset carefully copied and dated the data from my notebook. It was a few weeks before, almost certainly late at night, while experimenting with extreme vibrato frequencies and depths that I realized that I was not hearing changing pitch or frequency through time, but rather complex timbres, both harmonic and inharmonic. 
Note that Jean-Claude Misset referred to these examples as negative increment tones. The name FM synthesis had not yet been applied. The discovery of FM synthesis was not a purposeful research, that is, stemming from a realization from looking at the equation that there might be some interesting experiments to try. Rather, it was altogether a discovery of the ear. This equation is known to everyone who's ever taken a cottage-level radio engineering course. It was known to Max, John Pierce, in fact, to all of the engineers and scientists at Bell Labs. Why, I have often asked myself, did they not realize its potential? After all, at the time, the theoretical potential for the production of rich dynamic sounds with the computer was great, the Shannon sampling theorem, but the knowledge required for realizing this potential was meager and the means, computer time, expensive. Perhaps the answer is that they know too much. In radio FM, the modulated signal looks and sounds like noise until it reaches a radio where it is demodulated. As you listen to these examples, ask yourself if the sounds are becoming more or less useful in a familiar musical sense. I begin with a simple, beautiful tone that is increasingly modulated. And remember, for someone who knows about FM radio, there's no demodulator. But I was just hearing an ever more interesting progression. Okay, first, a tone that's not modulated. Now vibrato. Modulation is faster. <laughs> now I'm going to, this is the actual data that was used. And you listen to what, and look. Now, the deviation becomes greater, that is the vibrato depth. Does this sound musically useful? Probably not. But that's not what I heard. What I heard was a pitch that was constant, where the spectrum or the timbre became richer. And this last one, what? Sounds like a diphthong. What? All right. So what I was hearing was not in vibrato changing in time, but what I was hearing was a complex spectrum that was well-behaved, that is, transposed, as you hear. So those were three different octaves. So there's the original tone. I showed David Poole what I had produced, and he found a text on radio engineering by Frederick Terman. The expansion of the FM equation 
confirmed that what I was hearing was exactly explained by the theory. Here we see how the sideband frequencies increase in number with increase in index of modulation. This is, the nat is nature doing her work. But pay attention to that one, because it looks like a resonance, the kind of resonance that a complex wave passing through a bandpass filter would make, the kind of resonance that we might find in voice synthesis. Now, there was a complication. The phase in the low order I mean, I'm sorry, the odd order lower sideband frequencies had a negative sign which was not included and is not included in most radio engineering texts. And it turns out that the phase is important. If I shift the carrier frequency down such that the low order sideband frequencies are in the negative frequency domain, they reflect around zero and add to those in the positive domain. And what we hear is the sum of the vectors. Right. So this is amazing, because it was two oscillators. Every other synthesis technique in the day would have required an oscillator per partial. And there could be hundreds of partials. So uh, extending this. But just one more step, and then I'll play some examples. If we increase the modulating frequency, but maintain the, the carrier frequency, which is the center frequency, then the partials flip with a change of phase around zero hertz, and they fall in between the existing partials, and we get a sound like this. Doesn't sound very interesting. With Two oscillators, well, we hear this simple change in timbre, which had important implications. But first, I'd like to show why, in a simple oscillator pair, the ratio of the carrier to modulating frequency coupled with frequency deviation produce such varied spectra. Okay. This is a bell tone. Change the shape of the index, which controls the amount of modulation and the overall amplitude, and with the same oscillators, produce these. During the exchange of FM data mentioned above, when I was at Bell Labs, Jean-Claude Risset explained to me his analysis and resynthesis of trumpet tones and what he had learned as he applied this knowledge to the synthesis of other timbres. I was struck by the elegance of his synthesis. However, the cost in computer time was large because his synthesis required, as I said, separate oscillators for each partial in the spectrum. And that placed a practical limit on the complexity of synthesis algorithms. 
The tones that I produced were done with two oscillators. So this is a canon that I wrote using Leland's program, which has high brasses, mid brass, and low brasses. This is Jean-Claude Visset and his publication describing his research. But here I show, will show you resonances that we associate with formants in speech production. So by adding two more oscillators, I was able to produce the following tones. Whoa. Sorry. They're good enough to listen to all the way through. This singing voice example that convinced Yamaha in 1979 to commit to FM synthesis in its LSI chip production. Although I didn't know it at the time, I sent an audio tape Japan and immediately the managing director flew to Paris and offered a large sum of money, about $200,000 I believe, to keep Stanford from thinking about alternative licensees. It was just at the time when the AI lab was moving on campus and Karma was facing a future without a computer. We were able to purchase a computer from Dave, David Poole's fledgling company, Foundly, and also pay back a $30,000 bridge loan to human, Humanities and Sciences, a loan that Halsey Royden surely thought was gone forever. <laughs> These examples were generated while I was at DEARCOM and led to an interesting meeting with Pierre Boulez and Maurice Béjart, who peeked in at five o'clock in the morning. This huge door opened and it's one of the big soundproof studios. And they asked me about these singing voice tones. At that time, whatever sounds the computer made was broadcast in every studio in the building before they had an audio switch. So everyone heard everything. And that's what brought Boulez and Maurice Béjart to my studio. Now, one of the other things we can do with is produce low tones, in a, to lower than it's possible for real male singers to sing by adding harmonics at intensities that would require a huge long vocal track, maybe a meter long and a great pumpkin head. Mm -hmm. 
So this is, became known as the Basso Profundissimo. Now, I'm going to deconstruct some, one of these, the uh, singing voice, so that you hear what critical element it is that makes a voice sound like a singer and not an electronic tone. I'm going to play a tone in three stages. First, the fundamental by itself, then the harmonics that would be present for a sung vowel, and finally, synchronous modulation, what we call micromodulation, a mix of periodic and random vibrato. So here's the example. electronic tone until it becomes human with this addition of imperfection. This was striking. When I played this for Max and John Pierce and others at Bell Labs, it was remark they were marked on the fact that never before had we the means to be able to, pre to create tones that were absolutely constant and, and play with the ambiguity or the boundary between perfection and musical imperfection. And it has to do with source identification. Now we're going to hear three of these singers, one at 400 hertz, one at 500 hertz, and 600 hertz. It's difficult to group and assign the partials of the three singers without some means of differentiation, for example, color. Now we hear three fundamentals, followed by all of the partials, but the colors do not help the ear. We do not hear the three sources until micromodulation provides for differentiation. Three fundamentals, pure tones a pure triad, a harmonic mix, but not three singers, until each group. A common micromodulation pattern within a group of partials allows us to distinguish between other similar groups of partials having slightly different modulation patterns, therefore segregating the sources. What's happening has to do with the Gestalt principle of common fate. So look for these three singers in the next image using your ears. Common fate is the way we group perceptual images based upon how they, in this case, how they group in time. So we look for the three singers. So the micromodulation pattern within a group of partials allows us to distinguish between other similar groups having slightly different modulation patterns, therefore source segregation. FM synthesis was a solution to two problems of that era, one computational and the other musical-acoustical. 
computational, required little proce processor speed. It was very efficient in its computation. Few stored functions, sine wave and, a piecewise, and piecewise linear envelopes. Aliasing, a signal could be limited by the simple control of one number, namely the index of modulation, or having to do with the depth of modulation. Musical, few but perceptually salient parameters, time-varying spectra, harmonic and inharmonic spectra, and the simple coupling of intensity and bandwidth and or centroid, or center of mass of the spectrum. Still without knowing how to solder. Method of synthesizing a musical sound. Patent numbers, income, a lot more than the first patent. <laughs> Enough to endow karma, and I thank Stanford for that. The computer music activity at Stanford attracted interest beyond music. The team that eventually created karma happened. That is, it formed itself over time around the roots, the root disciplines that Max's own work had prescribed, computing, signal processing. Psychoacoustic is, of course, music. The AI lab hired James Andy Moorer out of MIT as the systems program in the spring of 1968. But Moorer came with more than computing, engineering skills. He is also a musician, had a strong interest in music as a domain of application for signal processing. He tracked closely the work that we were doing, and after a couple of years, entered the PhD program in computer science, and he studied auto automatic music transcription. By 1971, John Gray was doing graduate work in psychology at Stanford, working with Roger Shepard. Shepard had been a colleague of Max's at Bell Labs and had a strong interest in music cognition. Gray discovered the work we were doing at the AI lab and with Schubert and Shepard, as advisors, he collaborated with Moorer in signal processing, and he began his seminal work on the perception of timbre. At about the same time, Lauren Rush, already an accomplished composer, began his doctorate at Stanford in composition and computer music. Several years later, he received a commission from the San Francisco Symphony for a piece, I'll See You in My Dreams, for orchestra and computer-generated quadraphonic tape, a first. Karma had the funds to hire a staff, which included a dedicated systems programmer, Tovar, and an administrator, Patty Wood and Heidi Kugler, as support. And then our graduate students from three departments. Electrical engineering, speech and hearing sciences, and of course, music. IRCOM opened in 1977. Pierre Boulez and team, with Max, the scientific advisor, purchased a PDP-10 computer and took all of the software that had been developed up to that time by the Karma staff and students. Boulez was insightful and saw that the future of music technology was ones and zeros, contrary to the performing, prevailing view in Europe at that time. Now I'm going to end this talk with uh, 
the, a bit of a piece that I composed uh, for laptop computer, a $78 billion computer, and solo soprano. The piece was I composed for Maureen Chowning, my wife, who is a fine soprano and a very forgiving and adventurous one who was willing to work with me in, on a piece that involved an unusual kind of theoretical underpinning in that it's based upon octaves that are not powers of two, as is the common music that we all know and love, but rather powers of the golden ratio. In addition, the scale is divided in such a way that there are approximately 13 pitches to the pseudo or to the well, close to our common octave. And my question was with Maureen, could a soprano learn to sing with complex spectra that were inharmonic, but structured, that is orderly, and where we would not hear, or she would not hear her voice as being not in tune with the accompaniment. So the idea was to mix these, these harmonic partials, typical of the singing voice, with inharmonic partials. And it turns out it worked very well. And uh, okay, let me move to another pane. And uh, this is the big the piece, and I'm going to play you a little bit of it. Uh, I'm having trouble with displays. Is what, what is happening? That I'm text is going off the screen, and so I'm sorry for having fumbled a little bit here. Um, so let me get things in order, and I'll show you how this piece works. So the idea is that some of the pitches that she sings are target pitches, tar pitches that the computer is looking for. And when she sings a pitch, it enters into the computer, it evaluates her pitch, converts it to frequency, looks to see if it's within the trap band, and if it is, it launches processing of her voice and synthesis as a complement. Um, so let me... Ooh. So the process is to set up the, make sure the mic is turned on. There's a tracker which, when off, does not look at the information coming through the microphone, but when on, it tracks. I put up the levels. and turn on the tracker, and if I could sing that A, the piece would begin. Mm -hmm. 
So that's the opening. The piece is about the Pythia, the Oracle of Delphi, and it's an exploration also of the cavernous spaces that were most certainly part of the deep history of the Oracle of Delphi, who basically determined the fate of nations and people, migrations for over a thousand years. Heraclitus mentions her, I think, in the sixth century BC as having a voice that is a thousand years. Well, she, she was active through the second century AD when Plutarch was a, one, of the, one of the priests at, at Delphi. So it was a long and career, career that the succession of women had, most certainly finding their deep roots in the cult of Gaia and perhaps in the Carician cave that is above the uh, Delphi on Mount Parnassus. So if I turn the tracker on and Marine continues to sing, I'll We'll hear a bit more of this piece. I promised her we wouldn't try and do it all, uh, <clears throat> but we'll do a bit.
Thank you. Thank you, Marina. That's the scale we all know and love. That one has one extra note, but there's only seven cents difference, so we don't hear it. I'll play them again. Common scale. Now, if I play them together, I have to add double the tritone and the common scale so we have, we can hear the beats. Till that's about a quarter of tone difference. Well, I carefully calculated and put into the program the, the difference in sense between the sopranos common reference, the common scale and the pitches that, whoops, that she was asked to sing in this piece. But it turns out it, she paid no attention because good musicians turn, tune to context. If a violinist plays with pianos, they play a temper tuning. However, when the violinist plays with a quartet, with other strings, they have sustained open chords, they play perfect fifths. So good musicians tune to context. And that was a great relief when we worked on this piece because her good ear just led her to tune to the partials, whoops, sorry, the partials that were closest in the spectrum to the pitch or present in the pitch that uh, she was asked to sing. Okay. so. Um, I want to close now, and I just a few words here about in my first steps, Leland left me alone to follow my passion as he followed his. And at the AI lab, we had access to the best technology of the day in a richly diverse environment. Chris Chafe, who became director of Karma when I retired in 1996, has, with his extraordinarily gifted colleagues, preserved and advanced those attributes such that Karma, well integrated into the university, is now world famous for its technological innovation, scholarship, creativity, and encouragement to an endless stream of young people who take their own first steps. So thank you, Leland. Thank you, Stanford University. And thank you, Joan Mansour. Okay, thanks. Yeah, you translate for me, or help me here. So I would be glad to answer any questions, should there be any. Questions. Audience, surely. Yes, please. Uh, 
that would like me to style sure. There are plenty of musicians who do that, um, but somehow you don't hear them. And uh, my, my personal uh, evaluation of that situation is that those composers were so good and themselves were so authentic in what they were doing, that is, they were of the age, part of an advancing line of, of musical expression, that the 10th symphony by Beethoven has probably been written you know, hundreds of times by now, but no one cares. So we listen to the music that's part of the age in which we live. And uh, history then decides what to keep and what not to keep. And uh, so I ask you all to uh, remember this piece and let's work on keeping it. <laughs> yeah, any other questions? Yes. Yes. The frequency of the vibrato? Well, in these cases, the reason that it sounds so real in the, the chorus of voice singers is because vibrato is a function of pitch height, like how high it is, also intensity. Vibrato is not a constant thing. It's something that is used, for example, by violinists to to create energy effort when they run out of bow pressure and velocity. That is, vibrato is a device that singers use to, to express uh, certain kinds of uh, div musical device. It's a musical device for certain kinds of expressions. So it's a function of overall intensity of a tone, its pitch height. So if I sing and then sing high, it, the vibrato seems to be wider and probably deeper. So it always changes. Now, in the example that I played, that mixture of vibrato, of random vib piecewise linear random vibrato and periodic vibrato, the, was about plus and minus two and a half hertz or two and a half percent of the pitch frequency. So at 200 hertz, you know, that's something on the, on the order of one and a half hertz, plus and minus the average. And then the, the uh, random part to make the vi periodic vibrato, quasi-periodic, was something on the order of plus and minus a half a percent. Yes, Don. Of new music. Okay, we have at Karma, when we were up on the hill, perhaps you remember we had concerts at the DC Power Laboratory. There was one memorable concert where we presented Elliot Leventhal's Mars in 3D film, a stereo uh, two projector uh, film uh, that, of the Viking lander that was put together by NASA and JPL and Stanford managed by, produced by Elliot Leventhal. That's just about to be re-released. One of our composers, Michael McNabb, and Bill Schottstadt, who did the original music for that film, uh, have, they have 
remastered it. It will be released by X Records, X as in X in Provence, in sometime in June by, and uh, in Blu-ray Blu 3D disc. It's an exciting moment. Elliot, as you know, uh, passed away not many months ago. We invited him and his wife Rhoda and his, one of his children and granddaughter to see special showing we had at Karma in August. And it was a wonderful occasion. But that will be available, by, uh, available through X Records. So concerts, we, Karma gives concerts, I think, one per quarter at the Knoll, outside in good, in when times are good weather. And the concert space at, at the Knoll, called The Stage, is in active use almost every night by chamber music groups, both associated with karma and not. And not. John, I have a question. Yes. These inventions and these collaborations yes. occurred at Stanford. Implicit in what you've said is that they could have occurred only at Stanford. Mm -hmm. And if that's an explicit comment, I wonder if you could say a little bit about the, the climate here, the institutional yeah. climate that might have enabled that collaboration yeah. to take place. <clears throat> Other people tried. You see Berkeley not many years after we began. Um, well, every university now has such an activity of some sort. But I believe that Stanford is, has the rich representation and in disciplines, including engineering and computer science, of course, which, on which I was absolutely dependent in the early years. Thank you, Ed Feigenbaum. Thanks, Bill Miller. Thanks, Pat Soupies. And the boundaries between departments are permeable as we talk to one another. We let students move from one to another. For example, Karma now has probably a 10 or a dozen PhD students who are in double E, but who are doing their work with Karma faculty as one of their advisors. Where Julia Smith or Jonathan Abel is one of their advisors. Uh, the close, uh, closeness that we have with psychology and speech and hearing sciences, when that was still in existence, is one that endures. That is, uh, Roger Shepard, when he was here, was, as I mentioned, was, was very attentive to what was going in music. So the university seems to support uh, this high level of interaction. And karma, I think, represents the best of such interaction um, with faculty from engineering sciences, music, of course, and now a new hire, this beginning of September, with a psychoacoustician on the karma faculty in the Department of Music. So, there's one other person I should thank, and that's Al Cohen for having managed the, the kind of found with the university our forming of karma in 1975. I'm not sure how difficult that was, but I imagine it took a lot of administrative tending to. And I, we thank Al for that.
Yes. Well, okay. <clears throat> this was an idea I had that we, rather than building big expensive concert halls that often are unsatisfactory for reasons having to do with a really complex discipline, you know, room acoustics, I thought let's build inexpensive halls that are basically sound absorbent and then manage the visual aspects as sound permeable uh, additions and make the concert hall perfectly malleable and have microphones everywhere and, and re reproduce the acoustics of whatever hall we choose, but with digital means. So if we wanted a chamber music like in the Estrahazy court, then we could have that. If we wanted uh, a cathedral, we could have that all within the same hall, managing this hall with digital lays. Well, it's hard to convince people that building a big box is, is a worthy cause. I don't think you can get funding for that. Um, I think the Bing Center is really exciting. And I think they've done some very careful uh, thinking about that. And I know that some of the Karma staff has been much involved. But it's an idea that uh, is absolutely practical now, especially with $78 billion computers at hand. So that, could do this piece that I am doing with Marine, probably um, we could do four or five simultaneous performances with no problem from the same computer. So technology is no longer an issue as far as I can tell. But it's the aspect of living in and uh, convincing people of what makes sense. But you do remember correctly and uh, thanks for paying attention, Ed. <laughs> I think you're being asked by him, by the way. Yes. Why don't we take our last question before we move yeah. to the... We exchange this for... Yes. Yes. For which reason? For not for technical, but political reasons. Oh, okay. Yes. So, uh, it's, I'm sorry? Specifically quadrophonics, he's asking Yeah. Yeah, well, Karma, we often do concerts with eight, 12 channels, and uh, it's quite a different experience. As you know, there's a famous cocktail party experiment where a recording is made in, with several microphones in a, in a cocktail party, and the proximate conversation is 
comprehensible if we listen back through multiple sources. But if you collapse the four channels to one, then the conversation becomes unintelligible. So the spatial aspect of hearing is not trivial. It's not, and, and we uh, depend upon the, you know, the auditory 360-degree processor to take over when our eyes no longer function at night. So it's only in the last few hundred years where we've become so dependent upon the vision. Uh, and we've lost a lot of the, well, we haven't lost the aptitude, but we, have, we no longer pay attention to quadraphonic or spatial sounds because there's little danger at night. We're all safe. There are no predators. There are no tribes trying to steal our women and food. And so the sentry who had acute hearing is, only exists now probably in submarines and sonar. And musicians are often chosen, I understand, to, to, fulfill those, to fill those positions. But spatial hearing is still a part of our, our, our and, and important to our, to our sensory experience, I believe. Okay. I'd like, on behalf of this audience, to thank you, John and Maureen, for a presentation that, in that last comment, added a, yet another disciplinary dimension to what we've just been hearing. It's really a kind of philosophic and historical reflection on the relative role of hearing and seeing. Um, so, so we have those dimensions as well to add to the multidisciplinary approach that you've taken, John, in your own life and career. So thank you so much for presenting. Thank you. Thank you.